0: Paul and Silas were going to prayer, and they were in the city of Philippi. They came across a girl, a slave girl, who was possessed with a demon. She had the spirit of divination, meaning that she could tell the future, and she had masters that were using her to make merchandise, exploiting her, to make money off of her. And this girl said, or the demon said through this girl, these are the servants of the most high God who proclaim unto us the way of salvation. They were following Paul and Silas, or she was following Paul and Silas and making that statement over and over and over again. The Bible says that she did this for many days. And eventually Paul got tired of it. The scripture said that Paul got annoyed. And he turned around and commanded the demon to come out of her. Well, when the masters saw that their opportunity to exploit her had gone, that Paul had destroyed that by casting out the demon, they violently seized Paul and Silas and brought them to the authorities of the city, and they accused them of teaching and promoting uh, Jewish customs, customs that were not lawful for Romans, customs that were not lawful for Philippians to follow. They were beaten and they were thrown into jail. There came a night while they were in jail, they were praying and they were singing. And The biblical record says that the other prisoners were listening to Paul and Silas sing praises to God. The biblical record also says that there was an earthquake. And the earthquake was so great, so mighty, that it shook the foundations of the prison and opened up the cell doors. Well, the jailer who had been guarding the prisoners had fallen asleep. But certainly the earthquake was enough to wake him up. And he woke up and he saw the cell doors open and assumed the worst. All the prisoners had fled. And he knew what that meant for him. That's a death sentence. And rather than have them torture him and take him out the way they wanted to, he said, no, no, I'm going out on my own terms. He took out a sword and was ready to kill himself. Paul perceived what he was doing and said in loud voice, Stop. Do yourself no harm. We're all here. All the prisoners are here. The jailer called for a light ran in and trembling, said to Paul and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? That's a very important question. And the subject of salvation is very important. We talk about it. Lots of people talk about it. We talk about it amongst ourselves, those in the Lord's church. We'll talk about things like, is it necessary for one to be baptized to be saved? Yes, it is. Uh, We will talk sometimes about false doctrines that some religious people will throw out there, such as once saved, always saved, which is not true. But the subject of salvation is not only talked about among. Uh, members of the Lord's Church, but a lot of religious people will talk about the notion of being saved. I'm saved. I'm part of the saved as opposed to the lost. But as we think about that term, as we think about that word, we really want to think about its context because it really doesn't mean anything unless it has a specific context. You know, you can be saved from a lot of things. I suppose the, the folks up in Buffalo want to be saved from the snowstorm. You can be saved from a hurricane. You can be saved from incompetence. You can be saved from your employer. You can be saved from uh, ridicule. You can be saved from embarrassment. You can be saved from poverty. You can be saved from uh, criminals. There are all kinds of things we can be saved from. So what was the meaning and what is the meaning when we talk about in a spiritual sense, in a religious sense, that we are the saved? What does that mean? We talk about that all the time. I'm saved. You're saved. We're saved. Saved from what? What are we saved from? There's got to be something. It doesn't mean anything to say, I'm saved. You must answer the question, saved from what? And that's what we want to address tonight from the Scriptures. What does the Bible teach us that we are saved from? And I hope that as we study this, those of us that have been saved, those of us who have been saved, who have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, will appreciate so very much more the salvation that we have. And if we have those in the audience who have not been saved, I hope that you understand the precious value of being in that state and will do something about it tonight before it's everlasting too late. So, saved from what? Turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-10. through 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-10. through While you're turning there, I will briefly introduce myself. My name is Kevin Clark, coming from Birmingham, Alabama, and it's a pleasure to be with you here. Um, I had planned on telling you that... Uh, here lately, I've been running around like a chicken with its head cut off and just uh, told somebody the other day, I think my middle name is sorry. I've been telling everybody sorry. Sorry, I didn't get that to you. Sorry, I'm gonna need an extension. Sorry, I need some more time. Sorry, I didn't get back to you. Sorry, I hadn't responded to your phone call. Uh, but I was gonna say, the one sorry that I was not going to give is sorry that I'm late for your gospel meeting. And here I am, late for your gospel meeting. Well, it wasn't my fault though. When I stepped out of the house, and said I was gonna get here at 647. When I got onto I-65, it says I was going to get her at 647. When I got, drove through downtown Birmingham, it says I was going to get her at 647. I got north of downtown Birmingham, said says 647. Somewhere along the line, it changed about 720 and 730 and 740. And I said, man, we're in trouble. And I had some alternate route and went through some places that I don't know where I went through. I just made it through and, and here we are. But uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me for the Gospel Meeting. I look forward to being with you this weekend. Hopefully we can spend a lot of time. Have your Bibles with you. I'm a low-tech preacher. I told one of the brethren here, so I don't do the PowerPoint thing. But just, uh, just have your Bibles. You can have it electronically if you want to, or if you have old-fashioned Bibles, that's fine too. But we're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let's begin with verse 6. First Thessalonians, the first chapter, beginning with verse 6. And you became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, now listen to this, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. But I suggest to you that when we talk about being saved and we answer the question, saved from what? We're talking about the very thing in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10, being delivered from the wrath that is to come. That is God's wrath. That's what we're talking about. We're saved from the wrath of God. We're saved from that awful, terrible, the tragic wrath of God that is coming. He says, through Jesus, we are delivered from the wrath that is to come. So that's what we mean when we say, I'm saved. Not just I'm saved, I'm saved from the wrath of God. That means something. But somebody says, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be saved from the wrath of God? Okay, so God's upset with me. Okay, so God's mad at me. Okay, so God's angry at me. What does that mean? What's the significance of the wrath of God upon me? Be careful. Be careful. There's a lot of significance to the wrath of God. I want to show you just a couple of things that will give you just a fraction. Just a fraction of the terror of the wrath of God. Turn your Bibles, you will, Genesis chapter 19, Genesis the 19th chapter. Saved from the wrath of God. We are saved from the wrath of God. But what is the wrath of God? Let us see from the biblical record an example of the wrath of God. Genesis chapter 19. You remember that the Lord had heard about Sodom and Gomorrah. The outcry against it was great and he had sent angels to see was the place as bad as He had heard that it was. And I want you to listen to what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. I want you to understand that this was the wrath of God outpoured on a city that was engaged in all kinds of immorality, all kinds of unrighteousness. Let's begin, if we will, in verse 23. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zor. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. ...from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the city... ...and what grew on the ground. But his wife, that is Abram's wife, looked back behind him... And I'm sorry, Lot's wife, I'm sorry. But his wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. It's easy to to read this record, but can you just imagine for a second what that would have been like? Can you imagine just being in the city and all of a sudden, not rain the way we know rain, But fire and brimstone just comes raining down. And immediately people next to you are just lit up, consumed with fire, structures being destroyed. You don't know, you've never seen anything like this. You don't know what, there's no explanation for this phenomenon. For all you know, this should never happen. But just out of nowhere from the heavens comes fire and brimstone that's literally destroying everything. And eventually it hits you and consumes you. And, And Abraham is looking at this And all he sees is utter destruction. It says not only the people and the structures, but what grew on the ground. Utter, complete and utter destruction. And all Abram sees is smoke going up from that complete destruction of those cities of the plain. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about how terrifying that would have been? I mean, the closest I can think is those living in the city of Pompeii in terms of how bad that would have been. And yet this had to be worse. This was the wrath of God against ungodliness. You don't think much of the wrath of God. I do. And as I said, what we see here is only a fraction of what lies ahead. Only a fraction of the wrath that is to come. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 7. Let's look at another example of the wrath of God. Genesis chapter 7. You remember that God looked down on his creation in Genesis chapter 6, although we're going to 7. And he saw that the thoughts of man's heart were on evil continually. All man thought about was evil and wickedness and carnality and immorality. And it was so bad that the Lord repented that he had made man and determined that he was going to cleanse the entire earth of human beings with the exception of Noah and his family. And I want you to look at Genesis chapter 7 verse 17. Now listen to the description of the flood. Now the flood was on the earth 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters and the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth and all the high hills on the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward. The mountains were covered and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life. All that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Can you imagine this scene of destruction? Every single human being who existed at that time completely wiped out killed only eight people survive only eight think about that only eight people noah and his family Noah and his wife his three sons and their wives that's it everybody else completely destroyed all and who had the the, the breath of life in their nostrils were destroyed with water with the flood that was the wrath of god all what men thought about was evil and wickedness contrary to God's will and God said, I've had enough and just destroyed everyone. That is the wrath of God and that, as terrifying as that would have been to live through that, is again just a fraction of the wrath that is to come. Why do I keep saying that? Well, turn over to Mark chapter 9 and I want you to listen to Jesus' description of the wrath that is to come through whom he, he delivers us from this wrath. He knows what's coming and he tells us just how terrible it is! Mark chapter nine, beginning verse forty-three. Mark chapter nine, begin verse forty-three. Actually, let's just go up to forty-two. Sorry about that. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell and to the fire that shall never be quenched. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell and to the fire that should never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched a very vivid description of how bad hell is. The Lord says it would be better for you to cut your hand off than to to go to hell. And think about back then. I mean, even now, (laughs) that's not a very appealing prospect. But back then, think about all the pain and how awful it would be to have a hand cut off and the Lord says, you know what? Far better to do that than to go to hell. What about cutting off a leg what about, can you imagine plucking, out of, plucking your eye? You know how sensitive that, plucking the eye out? He says, all of that is better than going to hell. How can that be? Well, what he's telling us, folks, is that whatever you can experience in this life that's painful, however much pain you get, whatever it is, you think of the worst possible, most painful experience you can have as a human being on this side of the grave, and the Lord is saying, that pales in comparison to hell fire. That's why I said what we saw in Genesis seven and what we saw in Genesis 19, what we saw with the flood, what we saw uh, with Sodom and Gomorrah, it's just a fraction because the Lord is saying, whatever you can experience on this life, including what those people experienced, he said, that's nothing. That is nothing compared to the wrath that is to come. Why do you think Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28? Turn over there, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, encouraging the 12 to preach the good news. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Can you see how the encouragement is there? He's like, look, you're going to go out. There's going to be resistance There are going to be authorities that don't appreciate what you're saying. You may be thrown into jail. You may be tortured. You may be killed. He said, don't worry about those that the worst thing they could do to you is to kill your body. That's the worst they can do. The one you need to worry about, the one you need to fear, the one you need to listen to is the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And I don't pretend to know all that is entailed in destroying, having a soul destroyed. And I don't intend to ever find out. I don't want to find out. But I know one thing that the Lord is saying, you better stay away from that. You preach the gospel. You worry about pleasing God. Don't worry about mankind. And so we're told about the wrath that is to come. But before we go much further, let's make this point. Because some people would portray God as just some sadistic and cruel God. Arbitrarily doling out this terrible punishment. No, no, no. We are saved from the wrath of God that is punishment for our sins. Say that again. We are saved from the wrath of God that is punishment for our sins. So it's not arbitrary. We earned it. We did the crime, and because of that, we do the time. That's what that is. It's punishment. We've done something wrong. God's wrath, he's not just arbitrarily angry. He's not just some people, you know, they have a hair-triggered temper, and just the least little thing uh, upset. No, 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 no. You know what angers God? Sin. Disobedience to his will. Let's let's read that in some scriptures. Romans chapter one, verses 18 through 19. We're talking about we are saved from the wrath of God that is the punishment for our sins. Romans chapter one, verses 18 through 19. We're saved from the wrath of God, not arbitrary, but it is punishment for the sins and the misdeeds and the offenses that we have committed. We are deserving of his wrath. Romans chapter one, verses 18 through 19. Romans the first chapter verses 18 through 19. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Okay, there's the wrath of God. We talked about that. Against what? Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. He says the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. All ungodliness. In other words, when men do what God has said not to do or they fail to do what God has said to do that is ungodliness. That is unrighteous in other words when men sin we bring down upon us the wrath of God I think we need to think about that because you know the problem is what's that old saying misery loves company we look around and we say, well, all of us have sinned, you know. You've done some sin, I've done some sin. And somehow we kind of bring it down and it's not so terrible and it's not so bad because we all do it. And God is saying, hold up a minute, it is awful, it is terrible, and my wrath is coming against your sin. You know, the first time that you sin, you're worthy of the wrath of God. Have you thought about that? First time you tell a lie, first time you use profanity, the first time you have a a lustful thought, inappropriate lustful thought, first time you get drunk, the first time you engage in fornication, the first time you engage in gossip, the first time you deceive someone, the first time that you have unrestrained anger, unjustified anger. Why You mean mean one thing that I can do in seconds is deserving of the wrath of God? Yes, because he's a holy God. God doesn't tolerate sin. God can't tolerate sin. He can't uh, have fellowship with sin. God hates sin. And sin makes him angry. And that anger is absolutely justified. And so when we sin, we bring down upon us the wrath of God. It's spelled out in a little more detail in Romans chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Read over there, Romans chapter 2. Paul has already talked about the Gentiles and their problems and how they stand condemned by their sin. But now he moves to the Jews and says, Romans chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves. Here we go. Wrath. In the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life. To those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek for there is no partiality with God. Did you see that? It, it, it's very clear that there's a judgment day coming. And for those of us that practice sin, those of us who live in sin, those of us who dwell in sin, those of us who don't have something to intercede for us, we deserve and we will get hell based on what we did. It's our fault. We're not pointing the finger at Adam. We're not pointing the finger at Moses and Abraham based on what we did. We bring down upon us the wrath of God when we sin. That's how serious it is. Sin is not funny Sin is not a joking matter. It's not a laughing matter. It's something God hates. It's something he detests. It's something that makes us angry. It makes him angry. And it brings down the wrath of God on our head. But he says, on the other hand, those who pursue eternal life. Now those, they don't have the wrath of God on their head. That's the category we want to be in. We want to understand that the wrath of God that we're saved from is brought on by our sins. And according to Romans, Romans 3.23... All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.22, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then you turn over to Romans 6.23 and couple that passage. What's the significance of the fact that we've all sinned and all fallen short of the glory of God? He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What we earn by that sin that every single one of us who's reached the age of accountability engages in, you know what we earn? Death. Not just physical death, too. Spiritual death. Eternal separation from God. That that, that has to sink in. It has to sink in for people of the world. You're never going to bring people to Christ until they understand how bad off they are. And that's what this message is about. When you have the wrath of God upon you, you can't get any worse than that situation. You need a Savior. You need something. There's nothing you can do about that. You can't make the record clean. Once you've committed a sin, you're guilty. And unless there's something that intervenes from God, then you're deserving of hellfire. We need to remember, even those of us who are in, in fact, especially those of us who are in the Lord's church. We'll talk about this a little bit more as we get towards the end of the sermon. But, but don't any of us get so sanctified and, and, and so self-righteous that we, we think we're better than ever, everybody else because we know the truth. We're better off, I'll give you that, but we're not better. Every single one of us deserves to go to hell. That's the fact of the matter, folks. I'm not sugarcoating. Nobody steps into heaven based on their spiritual CV and resume. We're there because of the grace of God, and we take advantage of the conditions of that grace. And that keeps you humble. (laughs) If you're going through life and you're thinking about that wrath that you've been saved from, that keeps you humble. And you want other people to likewise be saved from that wrath, just like you have. You want other people to experience that. And yes, there's obedience involved. And yes, there's dedication involved. And yes, there's service involved. And we're not earning heaven by that service. We're just satisfying the conditions of that grace. But we need to understand that the wrath of God is what we're saved from. It's wrath that is punishment for our sins. Well, I don't want to end on that. Let's have a, a silver lining. Let's say this. And the only way to be saved from the wrath of God is through obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only way to be saved from the wrath of God is through obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now notice I said the only way. So there are a lot of religions out there, right? A lot of different faiths, a lot of different religions. And we are told oftentimes that these are just different routes, different paths that go up to the top of the mountain, and we will all get there. We have different paths, different ways, but we'll all converge at the top, which would be heaven. That's not what I said. More importantly, that's not what the scriptures say. If you're not in Christ Jesus, you stand under the condemnation of the wrath of God. There's no other way around that. And you can be sincere, and you can and be devout, and you can be religious. But if you're not in Jesus Christ and you haven't obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's how you get into Jesus Christ. You have the wrath of God ahead of you, and it will come, and it will be disastrous. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. 2 Thessalonians, the first chapter, verses 6 through 10. We're saying we're saved from the wrath of God. We're saved from the wrath of God that is the punishment for our sins, but we can be saved from the wrath of God through obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. The Bible says, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And listen this. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished, there's our word again, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. The Lord is coming back. He's coming a second time but his coming won't be the same for everybody. And he says, if you're not in that group of people who know God, and based on that knowledge of God, have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, then the Lord that comes back is not a savior. He's not a redeemer. He's coming back as judge, jury, and executioner. He says he's coming back in flaming fire with his angels, taking vengeance, wrath of God taking vengeance on those who do not know God and have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they suffer the worst fate that can be known to a human soul. Did you notice that? That is to be separated from God for all eternity. I mean, we do recognize that's the worst part of hell, right? And I'm not taking anything away from what we just read in Mark chapter 9. It's all baked into the same cake. But the worst part of hell It's really the opposite of the best part of heaven. The best part of heaven is not, oh, there'll be no death. There'll be no tears. That's all legit. I'm not taking away from that. But the best part of heaven is not that. The best part of heaven is God's there. And you're there with God. That's the best part of heaven. Everything else, that's fine. But the worst part of hell, the worst part of hell is God is not there. And there's nothing about God in that place. It's eternal separation from the one for whom we were created to have fellowship. That's the saddest fate known to a human soul. That's why we were made, is to have fellowship with God. And we miss that. And we miss it for all eternity. And we have to deal with that over and over again. I don't know about you, when I, th- I think about hell, it, it just... At some point, my mind just shuts down. Because in this life, when we have something painful, when we have something uh, difficult, something uh, that's very uh, uh, discomforting, you know, there's an end point. Normally, hopefully, it's just within a few days or maybe a few weeks, maybe a year. But even the ultimate, if it's death, you know at some point this is going to stop. But what we're told and Jesus told us a while ago where he said, The worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is a pain. This is a suffering. This is an agony that never, ever stops. Can you imagine that? Separated from God for all eternity. And it's too late to do anything about that. It's too late to repent. It's too late to say, I believe now. It's too late to put aside the sin. It's done. And there's no way to change that. That's what hell is. That's what the wrath of God is. But again, the silver lining was baked into what was said. He said, he's coming in vengeance on those who do not know God and have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, what if I do know God and I have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, then I'm delivered from the wrath that is to come. You see that? I don't have to worry about the Lord coming back. In fact, those in Christ, they're not scared of the Lord coming, right? They welcome it. They embrace it. As Peter says, they're hastening the day when the Lord comes. Why? Because it's going to be a joyous reunion. It's a time of joy to be with the Lord, and thus we should be with the Lord always. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, trying to encourage us. So the second coming of the Lord, as we said, is going to mean two very different things to two groups of people. If you're in those who have the wrath of God on your head, it will be a terrifying experience, and you should be terrified. But if you're in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you know the Lord, you've obeyed the gospel, it's going to be the greatest, wonderful, most wonderful experience that we've ever had. And so we have that choice. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Turn over there, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. I normally don't pay much attention to the clock, but this time I did look. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I don't want to scare y'all off, but I was preaching one place and got caught up in the lesson. Lost track of the time. I'd started preaching at 1130. I thought it was coming up on 1230. It was coming up on 130. It was uh, so bad. We had a sister. She hung in there as long as she could, but she was diabetic and she had to leave. She had to get something to eat. And then the brother in the back, one of the elder brother, he said, uh, Brother Clark, we want to thank you for those sermons, all three of them. <laughs> I got the point. It was a long time before I was invited back to that congregation. So not, not going to preach two hours tonight. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians, the second chapter, verses 1 through 10. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Then the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You notice that Paul says, we were all children of wrath, just like the others. Paul's a Christian as he's writing this. And Paul's writing to other Christians. And he's saying, I want you to remember something. You know what? We all were bound for that wrath. We all had earned the wrath of God. We all were going to that until we came out. We were delivered by the grace of Jesus Christ. We don't run from grace. We're not afraid of grace. He's saying very clearly there's, there's nothing that we could have done. Once we've committed that first sin, there's nothing we can do to restore us to good standing in God's eyes. You, you, you could spend the rest of your life doing good deeds, and if you somehow did not sin one other time, you still could not restore fellowship with God. You need His grace. But biblical grace... Not the grace that these people are promoting. Cheap grace. Grace that doesn't require anything. Grace that doesn't teach you anything. Grace that doesn't instruct you anything. Grace that doesn't demand anything. No, in this very passage, he says, you know what? (laughs) The reason for the grace is for you to be sanctified, set apart, to do his works, works that were in his mind from the very beginning. So there is work to be done. Obedience is important. They are conditions of grace. But it's no less important because of that. And so that's important. We understand, look, all of us sitting here, we, we understand this. We deserve hell for what we've done. We've disobeyed God. And we say it again whether it's a commission or omission, whether you did something that the Lord said not to do or you failed to do something the Lord said to do. When God, I mean, think about it God made us. He created us he gave us he gives us all things life breath all things act 17 the gift of life itself is amazing we exist because God gave that to us but he didn't give us this gift to just go ahead and flaunt it and waste it on yourself just selfishly indulging your own pleasures there was a purpose for that gift of life it is to fear God and to keep his commandments that was the reason And God gives us everything. You know, a while ago he talked about the goodness of God in Romans 2. The goodness of God should lead you to repentance. When you sit back and you think about how great God has been to us, all the things he's given to us, doesn't it just make you want to reciprocate by obeying, by doing what he wants you to do? That's the least we can do. It's absolutely appropriate for God to say, I want every aspect of your life. Because he gave it to us. We wouldn't have it otherwise. Oh, that's too much. All things by moderation. I want a little bit of religion, but not too much. That's not taught. It's complete submission to God or it's nothing. I sometimes wonder if we Christians understand that. It's not about just a little bit of religion or enough religion. When we go to services and we go to the gospel meetings, and we, but we haven't completely submitted ourselves to God's will. We know it. We're not really serious about this stuff. We don't read our Bibles. We don't care about spiritual things. We don't have spiritual conversations. We don't share the gospel. We're not fervent in prayer. We don't pray about anything. We just go about our secular, carnal lives, but we come back here and we're seen and we get our praise on and we sing and, and we and pray and, and, and just go through the motions. And I'm not saying everybody's that way, but I bet you there's somebody out there that's like that. We've got to get serious about it. The goodness of God leads you to repentance. And if there's somebody tonight who has not truly repented as a part of obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ, we want to encourage you to do that. We want you to think about all the things that God has done for you. Think about all the good times, all the joy, all the happy times, all the good memories you've had. Anything good, all good things come from the hand of God. God is giving the ability to enjoy those things, to experience those things. And so you already are the beneficiary of God's grace. God's given us so much. And he says, you know, in return, you need to give me yourself. But here's the wonderful thing. It's not an arbitrary, I want you to give yourself. When we give ourselves back to God, we're still doing good for ourselves. Isn't that wonderful? God demands us to do the very thing that's in our best interest. When we do things according to his will, it's a better life. It's a better existence. Godliness has the promise of the life that now is and the life that is to come. Sometimes we focus on the life that is to come, and that's appropriate, but notice that that godliness also has the promise of the life that now is, which tells me that the life lived in accordance with God's will is the best lived life. I didn't say it was going to be a life without any pain, I didn't say it was going to be a life without any sorrow. I didn't say it was going to be a life without any difficulty. I didn't say it was going to be a life without any challenges, but I did say it's the life best lived. Why do I know that? Because these things are written for our good always. Always. The commandments of God are written for our benefit. So if you are out there and you have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, you fall, remember we said there are two categories, 2 Thessalonians 1, through 6-10, two categories of people when it comes to the second coming of the Lord. There are those who have obeyed the gospel and do know the Lord. And for them, the second coming of the Lord is a wondrous occasion. But on the other hand, there are those who do not know God and have not obeyed the gospel. And for those folks, it's a terrifying, a terrifying experience. But the silver lining is you can choose right now. You can choose which camp you want to be in by simply obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, and thereby be added to the Lord's church. The Lord does the adding. And then go about doing the most important work there is to be done on this side of the grave, and that is to seek and to save that which is lost. And we know that's the most important work to be done on this side of the grave because the Lord said that's why he came, Luke 10:19, Right? And I would suggest to you that whatever brought Jesus from heaven must by definition be the most important thing that can be done on this side of the grave to seek and to save that which is lost. But let me say this. Maybe there are those in our audience who were in the category of those who should be looking forward to the Lord's coming. But maybe you really aren't. Because even though you were baptized for the remission of your sins, Even though you were added to the Lord's church. Have you forsaken him? Have you turned your back on him? You know, the worst thing, one of the worst things, is when you're a Christian and you know you're not right with the Lord. When you go to bed, before you put your head on the pillow, you should be terrified. You should be terrified. Because unlike the alien sinner, You know what's coming your way if the Lord comes back and you don't wake up the next morning. You know. The terror of the Lord. So if you're in that condition, why would you continue to persist in that condition? Make your soul right with God. Whatever it is. The Lord just said, whatever is the hindrance, whatever is keeping you back, whatever is the obstacle, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. We're talking about eternity was in your grasp. I mean, in fact, the Lord says it's worse. It's like Peter said, it's worse to come out of the world into the Lord's church and go back into the world. That's worse. You don't want to be in that situation. So if you find yourself tonight, you know you're not with the Lord anymore. Make it right. If it's a public thing that needs to be known, have the courage to come forward and, and confess. That's a good thing to do out of consideration for your brethren. You know, sometimes we have uh, Christians who are living immorally. And uh, let's say that you're a member of the congregation here, and you don't know about that, and you're out trying to teach somebody, and you mention where you're at. Oh, yeah, I know where you, you go to church. You go to church with that serial fornicator. You go to church with that serial adulterer. And, and what are you going to say? You've just been ambushed. You really, it's kind of hard to recover from that. But imagine this scenario imagine the serial adulterer or the serial fornicator came to his or her senses and publicly confessed that they were wrong and in sin and asked god forgiveness and asked for the brethren to pray for them and ask for forgiveness then you'd have a different story oh i know exactly who you're talking about yes he was a child of god he was not living in accordance with god's way but you know what he came to his senses much like the prodigal son and he confessed and he repented And he's back into the fold of God. Now, let's quit talking about him. Let's talk about your soul. (laughs) You see that? It's a good thing to let people know so we're not distracted. We're trying to what? Teach. Seek and save that which is lost. Take that off the table so we can focus on the souls of the people that we're talking to. That's a good thing to do. So if you are not right with the Lord, either because you never have been obedient to the gospel or because you've obeyed the gospel but you've fallen away, I want to encourage you to take advantage of this opportunity because this may be the only one you get I mean the Lord could come tonight we don't think about that right we say that but do we really emotionally feel the Lord could come tonight so I'm just gonna I want you to do this in your mind if if the Lord were to come tonight if you knew the Lord was coming tonight how do you feel how do you feel about your soul If there's terror, you know what you need to do. But if there's joy, if there's eager anticipation, if there's excitement, then you are where you need to be. If anyone is subject to that invitation, we ask you to come forward as we stand and as we sing.